One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This podcast is recorded on the stolen lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation and I pay my respects to their elders past and present. I extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples listening here today. Sovereignty was never ceded. It always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Welcome to Reclaim Me. I'm your host, Madeline Heather. Reclaim Me is a true crime podcast told by those at the centre of those crimes, the victim survivors. The general public often hears stories of victim survivors through the lenses of perpetrators or the media, and we're changing that narrative here. These interviews are raw and honest, so a word of warning is necessary as discussion and topics may be triggering or distressing for some listeners, so please use your discretion. If you need help or support, please see the suggested resources in the show notes of this episode or contact your local crisis service. Hello and welcome to Reclaim Me. Today I am joined by the wonderful Taylor. Taylor or Tay Talks, the podcast host, the legend. You have been on an, a podcast uh, of that we did together quite a while ago. It was one of the first podcasts I think that we did. Um, welcome. Do you mind reintroducing yourself and telling us a little bit about yourself and what you've been up to lately? Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Manny, for having me on. And hi, everyone. My name is Taylor. I am the founder of uh, Tay Talks, which is a brand that is designed to amplify voices of color um, specifically, but to talk about trauma and um, the way that uh, trauma impacts us and gives a platform for those to share their story um, and to essentially just connect between storytelling and identity and people's voices. Um, I am a blogger. I'm a business owner. I'm also a full-time spectrum doula and a full-time student. I recently graduated from undergrad um, here in America. I'm from New York. So yeah, I am here um, in America. And I'm now pursuing my master's in public health um, with a concentration in sexual and reproductive health. Um, and my focus is in global health. So I'm super excited uh, to get start this journey. I have two more years left, um, but I'm excited. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so happy to have you back. And it's so beautiful to see your face smiling back at me. And I connected <laughs> with you recently again, because I got a lovely, lovely message from somebody. So I do tend to get messages here and there from people who might say, you know, thank you for the show or whatever. And and every time somebody does message me something like that, it makes my absolute day. But when I opened Mm -hmm. this one, I got full body chills and cried basically, because it was just so sweet. And it was on an Instagram post that I had done, which was a quote of the podcast that we had been on together. And I had quoted you and you had basically said, it took me a very long time to not blame myself and not be angry with myself that I didn't fight back. 
And I've posted that a couple of times and every time I have, we've had this incredible response from people in the validation that that one statement made. And this one person messaged me and said, this one single post gave me the validation I've been seeking for 20 years. Thank you. And that was it. And I'm sitting there going, you know, how incredible is that that somebody on the other side of the world can have a conversation and just through fluent conversation, something that you've said has impacted somebody so profoundly in how they're recovering from their own trauma. And I thought that was just really amazing. And I just sent it over to you and I'm, I was a bit, bit emotional. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, I, I, I was emotional too. And I think hearing it now um, puts me in a different space and it's so rewarding. Um, just to hear that someone else resonated uh, with with my words, because for the longest, I felt so alone. Um, and I think I've shared this with you. It really wasn't until I, um, I think I heard your story. Yeah, I think I heard your first episode and that was how we connected. And I started just connecting with other survivors and I felt like, wow, I, I wasn't alone. Like there were people that got me and understood me and there are people that were able to relate to my experience, but to share ways that, um, that worked for them to share healing, um, alternatives to educate me. And I'm just so grateful for that community. And I never thought that my story would really matter truly. Um, that wasn't my goal. My goal wasn't to, you know, take it to YouTube or take it to the Capitol. It was really just for a way to, for me to express myself because there was no other way for me to, I I couldn't put words to paper. Journaling was so hard for me. And to this day, it still really is hard. I used to journal all the time and then my assault happened and I stopped journaling. Um, so it's really hard for me to put words to paper, but when I'm able to, verbally just talk through it, whether it's on a phone call, on a Zoom meeting. Um, I used to vlog and just like make these little videos on Snapchat. And that was my way to express myself. And that's how the podcast came about. And that's how conversations like this that we're having came about. And so I I appreciate your listeners reaching out and saying that that quote um, provided them some sort of validation. And gave them an opportunity to resonate because it's so important for us as survivors, as victims to know that we are not alone in this and that there are so many other people that are feeling this way. And for that person to get that validation 20 years later is insane. And I'm sure that there's so many other people who are just like that, who are still feeling like they were in the wrong for not doing what they're what they probably wanted to. And I put that in air quotes, but in reality, our bodies were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. Right. So whether you had a freeze response, whether you had a fight response, you know, um, whether you ran away from the situation, whatever it was, you, you can't control your brain, right? Your, your brain has, there's parts of your brains that you simply cannot control. And I think that's the most beautiful part of this healing journey. And that's something that I didn't recognize and understand for months. I, I blame myself. And I, I think once it connected, once I was able to understand the psychological component, it had to take that I'm a type A person. So I had to do the research myself to understand why I froze. (laughs) Like it, 
nothing was clicking for me. I was in therapy, talked to my therapist, and she encouraged me to read a book called The Body Keeps Score. Um, to this day, I actually still haven't gotten through the whole book, but part of the, the book um, discusses your trauma responses. Um, and my therapist is a trauma-informed uh, therapist, and so she we she had me read the book, and then we talked about it, and then we compared different scenarios. And I think for me, once I was able to make sense of those trauma responses, that's how I was able to forgive myself because my body did everything it needed to do. And it all started to make sense because there's parts of my assault that I don't remember. There's parts of, there's days leading up to it that I don't remember, experiences leading up to it that I don't remember. It's very foggy. Um, and that's my brain protecting myself. That's my brain protecting myself from those memories because something bad happened and it doesn't want me to relive that experience, right? And that's where triggers and all those things come into play later on as a way for your brain to remind you, hey, we've been here before. Um, so I definitely, you know, for anyone who is in this position where you're blaming yourself for, you know, freezing, for um, having this flight response, for fighting back, because that's it too. A lot of people blame themselves for even fighting back. And sometimes those fights um, turn into, again, in air quotes, more harm because now the victim is no longer seen as a victim. Um, and now they're seen as the perpetrator um, in events that then they do have fight responses and those fight responses can lead, up, lead to death. There's so many cases where survivors are no longer being treated as a victim and they're, they're treated as, you know, for lack of better words, the perpetrator. And that puts them in a space where they're unable to heal um, for years later. So I definitely just want to, you know, hold space for all those who are just, you know, battling those thoughts that they're having in their head with those trauma responses um, and battling those feelings because it's hard. It's real tough to get out of that headspace. Um, but once you do, you'll feel so, so much at peace and so um, validated because you did everything you were supposed to do in that moment. And you're here today. Um, and you're, you're fighting and you're, you're still advocating for yourself. You're, you know, you're setting your boundaries, you're healing in a way that, you know, others can't, you're like you're showing up for yourself and that's half the battle. hundred percent. I couldn't agree more. And that book is incredible by uh, the body keeps the score by Bessel van der Kolk. And mm-hmm. it is a really wonderful way of understanding how the body reacts to trauma. And yeah. one thing I learned later on as well from my, um, from different research that I did was that, the pool of people back when they came up with the fight or flight response was only men. It was only based mm-hmm. on men's male subjects. It was only men who were subjected to um, stimuli in which they would have a certain response and they had that fight or flight response. And if you think about the situations that we've gone through as women primarily in our lives growing up, you know, whether it be being harassed on the street and you just have to ignore it, whether it be somebody cornering you in a store and making you feel uncomfortable and you have to be really nice so that they'll leave you alone, mm-hmm. whether it's a guy hitting on you at a bar and you really nicely rejecting him and him being much larger than you and, I don't know, having a go back at you or putting you in a situation where you feel in fear for your life kind of thing. Those things have fed into your personal responses and I think it's important to remember that there's a whole 
51% of the population that hasn't been captured in that study. So we don't know enough about the freeze response or the comply response. And I don't like saying fawn because to me the word fawn isn't indicative of what it actually means. It's complying mm-hmm. with somebody's demands and body body language and everything to keep yourself alive. And right. freezing is being unable to do any of those things and just staying there. And that's a completely valid response as well. And I think that if we did redo that study with women, then we would consistently mm-hmm. be seeing compliance and freeze responses occurring in much higher levels than we would the fleeing or fighting because our life experiences have taught us that. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I agree. I, and you probably heard, I never mentioned fawn because I can't find a word that's similar, but I like comply. So I'm going to be using that more. Um, But that response, you know, is fairly new um, to research, but it's so important. Like there, when I look back at my own um, trauma experiences and working through, you know, the last year of therapy really just focused on my PTSD and um, trying to just make sense of everything. And so I, I look back in that comply response and I would say I had a mix of a freeze and comply response. Um, I think my comply response kicked in after the assault occurred when I was still in the relationship. Um, and that was this for survival um, in a way, you know, you, when you comply, you're doing everything you can to, I think, in a lot of ways, survivors can experience this when they're trying to please their abuser. Um, and I think that comply response, it occurs in so many different ways. And when you even take it a step further and look at the way child victims are, um, families, right? When you're looking in a household, um, so many different ways because now there are children involved, right? Or now there's assets involved and all these different responses. So it's just, the, I could talk about the research like so much because it's so interesting to see the way that all these different trauma responses show up in our just daily lives um, and our daily like patterns. You know, we, we, we have these responses um, unconsciously almost every day in different scenarios. Um, so it's pretty cool to see. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it is a good segue though, because like you said at the beginning, you are a doula now. Um, And there are so many things that are going on with, uh, I guess, uterus owners who have experienced any kind of trauma and are now going through the process of pregnancy and childbirth. And I think it's an incredible thing to think about, about how to navigate trauma in a very new way as well. But Before you get into kind of how you're working with different clients and how that's working for you, especially in that space, do you mind kind of defining what a doula is? Because I'll be honest, um, until I saw you doing it and I've met a doula in Australia recently, I didn't know what it was as somebody who's never bared bared a child, bore a child, had a child. (laughs) Yeah. So can you you take me through like what the doula's role is and what, what it is? Absolutely. That's so funny. Uh, Most people have no idea what a doula is. Um, So I'm a full spectrum doula. So that means I cover pregnancy outcomes. So that can include um, fertility, um, abortion, uh, the overall nine to 10 months of pregnancy, um, birth, prenatal. So leading up to um, 
leading up to being pregnant and right and during the pregnancy and then postpartum. So the time after pregnancy. Um, doulas can specialize in individual things. So I have some doula peers who specialize in just postpartum. And I'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, just prenatal, just birth. Um, but I can cover all. So doula is a skilled, trained birth worker. You get trained and certified. Um, and it's basically under like formal um training. So you work with, you can work with midwives, you can work in a hospital. There are doulas um, in New York. That's more common to work in a hospital as a doula. And then you can also have your own business. So I have my own business. Um, I haven't decided to work in the hospital because I don't live in New York currently. Um, And I am actually in Georgia and in Georgia, the maternal health care is unfortunately like non-existent. Um, it's very hard to one find a doula. It's very hard to get an OBGYN um, to get just care if you are planning to have a child or you are having some pregnancy related concerns or issues. It's very hard to just receive care in general. So um uh, you can run your own doula business. Uh, so again, it's a skilled birth worker, um, someone that's trained um, and or certified. They don't have to be certified. Um, certification is a way for um, hospitals and uh, establishments to essentially keep doulas out. Um, and that just goes with the a long history of oppression in um, birth working communities, um, specifically in like Black communities. Um, if you're not certified, hospitals will use it as a tactic to not allow um, doulas in, in the space. Um, but again, they work to provide guidance and support um, during the pregnancy, during labor, during birth. Again, um, it could be different if you're working with an abortion specific doula who maybe only focuses on pregnancy pregnancy outcomes, right? A fertility specialist doula, um, a breastfeeding doula. So it kind of varies, but the overall goal is to provide um, emotional and physical support uh, to families and to the birthing person or to the person that may be pregnant. Um, and their role is um, just to also provide partner support so you can help bridge the gap between partners and the birth person. If there are children involved, um, help uh, accumulate the kids uh, to the new the new member of the family. Um, and then the postpartum, which is my favorite, and I think something that I'll probably work more towards on focusing on is that crucial time um, between birth and that four to six week period. Um, where maternal mortality is very high, um, postpartum depression is extremely serious and it can occur instantly. And so that is the mental health component of that, um, but the also physical component after birth, there can be a lot of underlying conditions that can occur. So hemorrhaging, um, so bleeding, swelling, damaging of the uterus, um, of the uterus lining, all of those things can cause a quick turnaround for unfortunately that will result um, in a death. And so the role of the postpartum doula is to essentially ease the transition uh, between um, the time period after birth and then those weeks. So you're, you know, like a caretaker, you're providing meals for the families, you're cooking for the mom or, or the birthing person. Um, 
for the, the dad, the child, right? Like you're helping them with this, um, with this new life. Um, you may do, you know, grocery shopping. I mean, a lot of it is just rooted in culture. So if you, um, are aware of the, the black midwifery, um, you know, mid the old granny midwives, black midwives that, um, have been around for years, right. The history of black women, um, laboring in, um, in spaces and on fields and, um, different rooms. That's the, the birthing story of the doula. So the midwife is a trained licensed um, nurse who specializes in midwifery care. And then the doula is the birth worker, but both work together. Um, It's a beautiful story when you have a midwife and a doula working together and coming to provide this space for a family. Um, I have not yet to have that experience. My clients have both given birth in a hospital, Um, but they, um, and they haven't had an at-home birth, but those experiences, typically your midwife would be, um, you know, giving birth at home. You don't have to. Um, that's kind of like the gist of it, of, of Azula. Um, they're essentially just there to be a birth worker um, for you and to provide that mental, emotional, and physical support um, during your, your pregnancy journey. Um, again, it's not limited to that. There's so many different resources. So I hope that answers your question. I kind of went on a tangent. No, I love it. And I think it's incredible in the way that you also talk about the culture surrounding what it means as well. And it's not just that I think you're being, you know, you're an advocate for these people. You're somebody that they can bounce questions and queries off. You can allay fears and things and you can talk about normality. And what we were just talking about as well before we um, started recording, and I think it fits in well with the discussion of trauma, is if somebody has had an experience of sexual violence or of domestic abuse or something within their lives, this new experience of their body changing and going through this could be incredibly traumatic, especially like you were just saying, postpartum, post-birth. Um, Mm -hmm. and there's obviously a number of factors, but I wondered, yeah, is there anything specific for you as a doula that you're trained in or that you've been able to work with clients before, um, where you have that trauma informed care, or is that like inbuilt into those practices to be as supportive as possible? Absolutely. So it's definitely built in. I think it varies between what organization you decide to choose to go with, to be trained in. So um, I first got trained in under a small local community reproductive health center, and it was black owned and they had midwives and black doulas. And so that was very meaningful to me because I wanted to get a little bit um, more of an understanding of the history of the doula work and the history of um, maternal health um, from a different lens. I felt like if I did something like a national organization like DONA um, first, that I would have not gotten the, um, I would have just gotten the textbook version of care and I wouldn't have gotten the nitty gritty of care, of quality care, and I wouldn't have been able to directly impact my community. So I actually have a cousin who's a doula and she's the one that advised me to go about this way. Um, She's also in global health. And 
she went to Dona first and got trained. And then she also, she realized that that wasn't enough for her um, as a black woman, as a woman trying to provide the care for underserved and underrepresented communities. She couldn't really target what she wanted. So she decided to browse for a local organization as well. That was woman owned, black owned. And that's how it was able to come full circle for her. So I am planning to get trained again because I, I do feel like there were some components that were missing in my training. Um, so I'm planning to get trained uh, probably with an, I'll probably do like a bigger national organization to get those logistics. And um, I think I mentioned earlier, like the certification component of it, a lot of the times the hospitals try to keep you out. So I want to get more trained on the business aspect of the doula work. Um, and I think the um, the organizations, the national organizations will help you with that. Um, but to answer your question about like the trauma part of it, yes, you do get trained. Um, I can only speak from the training that I had, which was a smaller local community. We did get trauma um, in Uh, trained. And that was something that I really advocated for because I knew that walking into this space, I might walk into some triggers. I might walk into a space where I have a situation. If someone's in a domestic violence relationship, what is my role, right? I'm not a licensed clinical um, provider, so I'm not legally obligated to report, right? But then, but I'm still serving a population, right? I'm still serving a community that could be in harm. So what are the different ways to like navigate and things like that? Um, I have a clinical background. So through my clinical background and working in a reproductive health clinic, I was able to um, get a lot of trauma-informed education on uh, women's care, reproductive health, um, GAT care, which is gender-affirming health care. Uh, I was able to get informed on a lot of different things. So I think that experience on top of the doula training came full circle for me on how to navigate um, the trauma uh, that could occur um, with doula clients. Um, I think you asked like, what are, did you ask what are some like ways the trauma can show up for doula clients? Yeah. Like, so what, if you're maybe in your experience or something that you've learned as well, um, has there been any commonalities with, I guess, presentations of trauma or people experiencing um, some issues with something that they've they've been through in the past or are going through now? Because, again, and it's hard to lump sexual violence and, and a history of that in with domestic violence in many ways because especially if somebody's mm-hmm. in that situation, we also know that pregnancy is an additional risk factor. Um, right. So it does make it very hard, but I guess working with these uh, people who are going to give birth, what would you refer to? Sorry. I, I hate saying women um, in this circumstance. Is it, I, I, I say I uterus say owner. Birth, yeah. Birth I say like birthing people. Birthing people. Um, yeah. yeah. Because, you know, as long as you have a uterus, you can give birth regardless of what gender. Yes. Um, so yeah, I say birthing people. So with, when you're experienced with these, with birthing people, um, mm-hmm. yeah. How is it navigating some of those different kinds of things and, um, have you seen presentations of that in different ways? Absolutely. So the one big thing that's like red in my head right now is um, pelvic exams. So I'm dating all the way back. This is even before pregnancy, right? Um, 
pelvic exams start typically around at least um, age 21. It might be different in Australia, but in America, at least 21 for a pap smear, right? So that's probably the most invasive, um, most invasive with the pap smear. Um, you, you have, uh, you know, your cells are tested or they're swiped, right? So that could be similar to, um, when you are say halfway dilated, there have been cases, thankfully my clients haven't experienced this, but there have been cases um, when the birthing person has had their membrane swiped um, and it's just two fingers and the physician swipes around the membrane to see how far they are. Um, however, there's ways that they don't have to do that. Um, there's other measures um, that uh, they don't need to see how far they are. They don't need, they try to do it to try to get the baby to move and position so it can move a little bit quicker. Um, but if anyone knows what pregnancy is like, what, um, you know, the birth experience is like, it's supposed to be as natural as possible, right? People have been birthing um, babies for hundreds of years and before even medicine um, was invented, right? So I think in that case, those two kind of relate the pap smear um, pelvic exam and then the swiping of the membrane. So the swiping of the membrane is extremely painful. If it were to be done, the person who is being done to would 100% know. It's very different. And that's probably the biggest thing um, someone who is already pregnant may experience from a physician and they're supposed to ask um, if it's okay. The physician is supposed to ask if they can do that. They don't. Um, uh, your consent is obviously violated, um, and so that's something that they should ask. Um, the pelvic exam it can be triggering for someone who has had, um, who has been involved in some sort of form of sexual violence, um, because it's the speculum is inserted, and that could be that could feel a little weird. Um, I can speak from my own experience. I personally don't like pelvic exams. Um, and as a woman, I have to get them. Um, I also have a family history of ovarian cancer, so I have to get them pretty frequently. Um, and it's something that I hate it. It's, I can't even like, I'm getting chills right now talking about it, but it's one of those things that helps me, which I encourage folks to do. And I encourage my clients to do is to ask the, the physician, the nurse, whoever it is, if they can explain what they're doing. Um, so it helps me to know and gives me a sense of control of the space every step of the way, what they're doing. Um, my last exam actually was probably the best experience I had. Um, there was like three people in the room and it was a nurse, it was a physician. And then it was someone who was like training. Um, and she was actually like around my age and I, they asked if it was okay. And I was like, yeah, it's really fine. Like she's here to learn. Um, and I was comfortable with it, but they were all just like talking to me. And that is a great way to distract your brain. So I definitely say if you're comfortable with it, I encourage people to disclose to their provider if they've had a history of sexual violence, because your provider will approach whatever procedure, whatever invasive technique that they're doing. Um, they will have a way to 
make you as comfortable as possible. And again, you can always change a provider, but I think those two things, the pelvic exam can be invasive because of the speculum and the way it feels um, going inside, you know, your uterine walls. It, it can just feel very weird. Um, and then the, the membrane swipe, I would say the, so that's, so we're looking at pre-pregnancy, pregnancy, and the birth experience. Now, the birth experience in itself can be very traumatic, um, especially if, you know, you go in with a birthing plan. And as doulas, we encourage our clients to have a birthing plan. I'm probably one of those doulas that maybe don't encourage our, my clients to have a doula plan, um, to have a, excuse me, a birthing plan, not a doula plan. Um, because realistically, things change, right? You cannot control your birth experience. Your baby's going to come out when it wants to come out right? Your baby's going to come out the way it wants to come out. So, you know, I've had clients who's like, I just want to labor at home my entire day. I want to just be at home. I want to do this. I want to do that. And I was like, great, you know, I'm going to do everything I can to support you in that. My client did not labor at home. She went into the hospital for a high blood pressure and she never left the hospital until three and a half days later. Had her labor at the hospital had her birth at the hospital everything that was in her plan was upside down yeah and so i encourage people to be as flexible as possible because if you are a birthing person and you make this a through z list of what you want and then it doesn't happen you trigger this anxiety stress um and your hormones are at imbalance right so you're already going to feel flustered and if you're not getting answers from the physicians and providers, that's going to create frustration. So in itself, that can be traumatic. Um, and then you unfortunately have the really big traumatic cases, which can involve, you know, having an emergency C-section, right? Um, the baby is, um, has a decrease in oxygen. Mom has a high, um, you know, uh, blood pressure, right? The birthing person may be having, little to no contractions, which is resulting in um, having an induction, which is basically it gets the water going, um, pulls the water out and gets the baby moving, right? So it's forcing the baby to come out instead of coming out naturally. So I think there's all different traumatic ways um, that can occur, but it doesn't mean that it's not something that I, I think it can be, I wouldn't say prevented because if I look at the way healing is, we can't prevent our triggers from happening. We can only know how to control our triggers. And so I can try as much as I want to prevent, you know, the way I feel about something. But in reality, if my body remembers it, I'm going to have a trigger, right? And so I, I encourage my clients just to the biggest thing, um, to cope when they're experiencing some sort of trigger response, especially my clients who have had um, sexual violence in their life is to focus on their breathing or find a happy place, a happy point. So what is their, um, I did EMDR therapy for a while. So in EMDR, we have to have this like safe space. And so my safe space is always the beach and I encourage my clients to find something, whether it's breathing, whether it's your safe space, whatever it is, and you can always revert back to that. Um, and 
to be as open as possible with their physician. Because again, if they have a great physician and a great nursing staff and you have a doula, hands down, you're going to have the best experience as much as possible, right? You're having people that support you. But if you don't have, it gets tricky when, you know, the physician gets changed. So it may not be the person that you've been working with for the past nine months, you know, they they switch shifts. So now it's just the next um, physician that's on call, right? And so you may not have that relationship with them. Um, and that's where that gets tricky and challenging too. I've had um, experiences where my client was very adamant about not having a male um, provider. And unfortunately, that was the only provider that was on call at the time. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm lip fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Time, and you know we we just had to deal with it, and, and it ended up all being fine. But initially, when that shift change occurred, um, she was like hyperventilating and was like her body was an emotional response. And, you know, I was like, you don't have to stay at this hospital. That's also another thing. Again, I don't know what the rules are in Australia, but in, in the U S you don't have to stay with your provider. You can always, that's your right. You can change. Um, you don't, 
you can change, you can refuse service. Um, your nurse, you can, if you have a shitty nurse, a mean nurse, you can be like, I don't want you get out. Um, and there's no problem. And so I encourage my clients to do that too. Um, but I think in those spaces, like you don't have control of who's on staff, right? But what you do have control on is who's in the room with you. So you can say, okay, I don't want this person. I don't want her this. Unfortunately, in her situation, that was the only doctor that was available. So we really just made do and, and worked with it. But it it all ended up working fine. She had a great experience. But her body just had this like trauma response of a male being invasive in her her space right and um and that's a lot it's a lot of intimate connection that's going on between you and your provider you know you and the nurse it's a lot going on um and so I think those uh experiences are probably the most traumatic the birth is there's so many different ways and I I try not to talk about the different ways the birthing experience can be traumatic because that's what ultimately scares a lot of people from um, having a pregnancy, um, and scares a lot of people from having a natural birth. They'll ultimately revolt to having a C-section because they hear so many different stories. And that is a rare, you know, the statistics, the data shows that maternal mortality in black women is extremely high and it is, but maternal mortality is the, the chance, the percentage of you going into the hospital and having a death experience it's high but it's also low in the sense that it's it's not like it's every single person that's going to the hospital like you people walk out and ha- and do have a great experience so i try yeah. not to talk too much about the negative because it can really hinder like that's what has scared one of my clients she was the first time mom and she was extremely scared about going into the hospital and so much so that she didn't even want to go to the hospital to just get her regular um checkup yeah because she's heard stories of people go in and then they don't come back out right so those are all types of things that can occur and it's all valid in whatever way that you feel or think as well and you could also I think as we've spoken about with any trauma response you could also have a a quote-unquote good experience um a very streamlined experience you could have an easy-ish birth and also Mm -hmm. be traumatized like this yeah. whole process would be so difficult for anybody who's gone through um, trauma. It's difficult for anybody in any circumstance, but additionally to that if you have had a previous trauma. And I think the other thing at the end of the day is whether planned or unplanned, whatever the pregnancy story for each person is, they want a baby or they're going to have a baby at the end of the day. They don't specifically want to go through everything else that is associated with it. And that's the same thing as the pap smears and stuff. I just want to live and not get ovarian cancer. Like if you could prevent me from doing that, I'll do it. But I'm exactly the same with pelvic exams. Every single time without fail after I leave, I cry. And it's just, it's not because it has to be a horrible experience. It's just because it is invasive. I don't like it. It is, I suffer from quite bad endometriosis. It is painful. And it's just, it's a bit demoralizing to have someone all up in your junk. You know what I mean? So it's, yeah, yeah. No, it is. Yeah. But I think it's important. And I think, you know, I love having this chat because it's just something that we don't talk about very much. I think the fact that people who experience birth are also people who have potentially experienced abuse. And 
and your body's not your own again for another period of time and it can be horrible. Um, but can you tell us also a little bit more about what we were discussing before that you've been, you did a little bit um, of study around, which is the relationship between sexual health and reproductive health? Yeah, absolutely. So this is my favorite topic. It's what I'm actually studying right now and um, what I hope to go into uh, after I'm finished with my master's program. I really was curious about this research um, because of my own experience. I had a very difficult time being intimate again after I was assaulted. Um, I like became celibate. Like it was just all this like crazy stuff that my peers for a 19 year old to be. Um, but I like, I couldn't, like, it was just so hard for me to be connected with someone else in that way. Um, and now I'm in a place where I've been in a relationship with someone for a while and I'm, I'm in a different space of healing, but I think in the very beginning that relationship between my body and my assault really overlapped. And that's when I started asking a lot of questions. Like I was asking a lot of why questions. So I started thinking about pregnancy, people that, um, you know, not, not, they didn't get pregnant through their assault or rape, but they pursued, you know, family planning later on in life. And so how did those, how do, how does that intersect, right? How did their, um, their trauma impacted their new life, right? Their, their new, their new creation of life. Right. And so, um, those are intersex. Um, there are some intersex between, I was curious about the mental health component. So I wrote a thesis about the way our trauma, um, shows up in our relationships, our intimate relationships and how that connects uh, specifically with your mental health and your sexual health. Um, so that was another thing that I, um, I researched. And so I just talked a lot about um, scenarios. I interviewed different people and just basically talked about their, their studies and kind of just really observed them. Um, but my main, I guess, uh, like observer was myself. Um, so I worked with my professors because I felt like I couldn't really tell other people's story the way that I wanted to, because there's so many limitations that the RIB, uh, excuse me, IRB has when you're doing research. And so I was like, well, can I just study myself? And that's really what I did my senior year um, of undergrad. I, I just studied the way I reacted um, to different um, intimate experiences. Um, so since my assault, I've only had one partner and that experience, um, like I said, was very difficult. So uh, a lot of the study shows of PTSD shows up in a lot of different ways. Um, so that's the big one disassociation. Uh, so the disassociation response is extremely high. I'm, I can pull up the statistic that I have, um, as I'm speaking, but the, the disassociation response was probably the one that I thought was like the most cool to dissect, um, because, it happens so frequently and unconsciously. So if anyone doesn't know, um, the disassociation response is basically your body goes numb. It can go numb mentally and physically, and it just feels like you're in like another state of being. Um, in a way, it can also be a trauma response as well in a way that your body's protecting you. But a lot of the times, 
um, for most people, the disassociation response um, is a way for them to just, you know, I had someone describe it as it was a way for me to like do the act and do what I needed to do and what I wanted to do without fully being present. And I thought that was so interesting because I was like, same, like, I want to do this. I feel empowered, but it was, it's like weird. You just like go numb. And so I had in the very beginning of my relationship, I disassociated all the time. Um, and I think my last, I had a recent disassociation response in July. I was going through, I just had this like traumatic response, but um, I completely like went to the state of mind. Uh, I felt like I was like, I've never been high before, but that's probably if I were to be high, that's probably what it would feel like. And, you know, some people really like the disassociation um, and like to live in it. And I had a peer who, um, I think I brought her on my podcast to, to talk about this, um, but she disassociated all the time in her relationship, um, even after years. And it was just something that felt good for her. Like she felt like at peace. Um, and so that's also something to think about, but with the disassociation response in, in this research, the way our, again, you're just looking at trauma sponsors, the way our body protects us, right? The way our body protects us from a, a feeling. So it, I used to feel like when it was happening to me that I was, my body like wasn't comfortable with the person, but that wasn't true. Um, it was actually protecting from like that feeling that reminded my body of the trauma. Um, and so like for me personally, I cannot, I don't like missionary. I cannot be in missionary position. That was how my assault happened. And it, and that's when I disassociate. And so that's something that I had to express to my partner when I realized that it was, that's what it was. I was like, yeah, this, like, we can't do this. Um, so those are different ways like to, for you to know. And that's like, that's where it helps. Um, another response is when you're having like a, a hyper hyposexuality or sexual experience. Um, and so that's when uh, someone who has been assaulted may overly want to have um, more sex than um, than normal. I hate using that word, but they are, are more likely to just, you know, have um, frequent intercourse, right? And so that's also another response. And when you t- get into that from the health component, from the public health perspective, again, so it's the intersects between public health, maternal health, and public health, reproductive health, and sexual health. Um, when you get into that, the concern, the public health concern is getting into um, sexual infections, right? So you're looking at the gonorrhea, chlamydia cases um, going up because more um, survivors are being sexually active um, and are actually less likely to use protection because this is a way for them to empower and reclaim their bodies. So they are feeling empowered, they're taking control of their sexuality. But a lot of the times in the thought process, you're not thinking about safe sex. You're just thinking about the empowerment, right? Yeah. And so the um, the cases have gone up for, for um, sexual infection. So you think about that risk. Um, and then 
the hyposexuality, a lot of it is a psychological component, right? So, which is what I had. Um, I was not interested in sex, didn't want to talk about it. Like I could care less. Um, And I had a complete opposite partner who like really enjoyed sex. And I was like, I I could do with that. Like it didn't matter to me. Um, And even still now, like I, like whatever. Um, So that's also been an interesting dynamic um, as well. So you, you tap into those mental components, right? So is it a PTSD that's making that um, having you have that hypo response, right? Is it depression, right? So you're looking at all these different intersects there. Um, and then with the reproductive health component of that, um, a lot of the times, like studies showed that people may, if they weren't really interested in their sexual health, they weren't really seeing their provider as much as they should have been. So the standard is that you should see a gynecologist um, if you have a uterus for at least once a year for an annual visit. Um, but a lot of people worry, uh, which causes issues like if you don't get your pap smear, right, and you have abnormal cells, right, or your blood levels are off, like um, endocrinology, right, so your, home, your hormones could be imbalanced, right? So all those things, it's like really important to see a provider at least once a year, just to make sure that you're healthy. But when you're not engaged in your own sexual health, um, you almost like don't really have a care, right? So um, there's a lot of misdiagnosis that occur because of that. Um, so yeah, so I think I think the biggest thing for me that was super interesting and what I really focused on was depression, um, PTSD, and disassociation response and um, how that overlap. I hope did that make sense? Did I answer your question? Yeah, hundred percent. Because I keep I think, like going on a tangent. <laughs> no, I I love it, and this is I love chatting with you so much because you're so educated on this as well. And there are so many things that people would be listening to and feeling like shit. Yeah, and I think the reason I love chatting about this as well is because you know from from experiencing pleasure sexually to childbirth, like these mm-hmm. are all situations of feeling your body or not feeling your body or responding to somebody else and your body. Like these are all in many ways interconnected. And yeah. I don't think we talk about them enough when we talk about what it was like to go through a horrible trauma and what it's like to heal from that. And, you know, one of the things Zoe, one of the most recent uh, guests on the podcast was speaking about was self-pleasure and trying to bridge the gap between that and that being a possibility to mm-hmm. get in touch back with yourself and be able to then in the future maybe experience that pleasure with somebody else and going to maybe see a professional, which would yeah. potentially be a sexologist or a pelvic physiotherapist yeah. or something yeah. like that. And it's just insane that people don't know these things exist. Yeah. So that was my thing. I am my therapist actually encouraged me to try self-pleasure and I did. And I, it was a great way for me to like slowly ease back into, um, I guess being intimate with my partner. Um, but during that period, I like consulted with a sexologist. I spoke with like a trauma informed sex therapist. Um, I, I like seriously needed support because I was just too, um, what's the word? Like, I don't even think it was like afraid. I think I was just too traumatized. Yeah. Um, and so I, 
I've read books. I mean, I, I read, I must've bought like 20 books to read about sex. Like I felt like I was in high school getting a new sex ed um, education, but like more in depth. Um, I read this great book. It's called Pussy and I think everyone should read it. I forget who it's by, but everyone should read it. Um, whether you're a survivor or not, if you're a uterus like owner, I think you should read it. Um, and I'll definitely like send it to you, Maddie, once I'll send you a picture and you can like share it. Um, yeah, it's called Pussy a Reclamation. I just got it um, by um, Regina Thomas Haar. Um, and so it talks a lot just about like rediscovering, you know, your sexual experience and like taking back that power, taking back that control. And I mean, I don't even think the book has anything related to do with sexual violence, but it has everything related to do with sex and healing and healing that, um, healing that for someone. And for me, it was so hard to really explore this because I grew up in a um, Caribbean culture. So we don't talk about sex. Like I, I was raised Caribbean Chinese. So we don't talk about sex, relationships, anything like that. And I think I spoke about that the last time I was on the podcast, um, just like sharing my own story with my parents and disclosing to them. It was so hard because uh, we don't talk about these things and culturally, right? In my household, we always did. Um, but culturally, it's something that um, is like you're, you're kind of seen as being like too fresh or like too enough is like what they say. Um, and so I think for me, it was so hard to really explore um, being intimate with myself, being intimate with someone else, because culturally I was just supposed to go to school, get straight A's. And that was it. I wasn't supposed to do anything other than that. Right. Boys were not in the picture. And so I think that's something that also plays a role into how you view your body after your assault. So if you were raised in a household or in a community or in a family, what, however it is where people are shunning you or looking at you differently because you have explored yourself sexually, um, that's also going to make you feel like, you know, you're not going to want to explore. You're not going, there's going to be so much trauma within that itself. And so that was my case. I not only had to unpack my trauma for my own assault and my, my previous, um, relationship, but I had to unpack the trauma from my cultural upbringing and, what that looked like um, for me and how that transpired into my relationships. And so I think that's really important too. Um, I think what's really great though, is when you find someone, and this is probably my biggest, if I can give like a, a tip, excuse me, or a lesson to another survivor is to don't be afraid to open up to that new partner. And I know that's easier said than done. And believe me, it was, I had, I had like brick walls, you know, thick brick walls. Um, when I was engaged with my, my, my partner now, and he thankfully we had a relationship before he was my best friend before we started dating, um, and was my person, um, who I like, who kind of knew what was going on, but not really. I, I kept my, um, assault like a big secret for a very long time. I think I shared that too. Like I didn't tell anyone for months yeah. on what happened. Um, but the aftermath, he was really there for. And so I had to learn to talk to him and to open up. That was something that I was never used to. Um, and he's so amazing. I can talk about him like all day, but I think it's so great 
if you have that support system and you have a partner who is willing to make you feel safe, to make you feel comfortable, to help you explore, you know, your own needs, that's like the best experience. Like I am so glad that I was able to, like, he was the person that I tried my, like, tried again with, um, to explore my sexual identity with because I felt like the most safest. And I think if I wish everyone could have that and could have someone where they can explore with, because it's, and like, we ended up being in a relationship and everything too. So like it worked out in a way that I was most respected and still like continued to be respected. Um, and someone that reads your body language, right? Your body cues, those things are so important. Like when you're in a relationship, it is so important for people to understand your body cues. And I think that was something I never experienced when I was like in my, I don't even know, like we weren't in a relationship when I was with my perpetrator. So I don't even know what you call it, but like this like talking stage or whatever. Um, I think that person did not care about my knees and did not care about my body language and like overlooked it and only focused on their own concerns and their own needs. And that's unfortunately how like unfortunate circumstances happen. But I think that it's really important when you're, when you are going to try again, I encourage folks to explore their own body first so that you know what you want, you know what you you don't want what touches you don't want. Like I, um, if I didn't explore my own body, I probably wouldn't have known what things work for me, what things didn't work for me. Um, and so, um, that was helpful. And I think checking in, you know, people say like, Oh, like asking consent throughout sex is like so weird. It kills a mood. It's not a mood killer. Like it's actually for me, it's kind of like a big turn on and I really appreciate it. So I encourage people to do that, especially your survivors, because you'll, you'll feel a sense of control and again, taking that power back. Right. Um, and if something feels uncomfortable, it's nice that someone's like noticing or like, Hey, like, does this feel good? Right. You, and you can make it cute. You know, does this feel good? Am I doing this right? Do you like it? Whatever. Right. And I think have fun with it. Um, that's definitely something. So yeah, there's just a lot of different, you know, ways that our trauma shows up in our sexual health um, and our, our reproductive health. Definitely. A hundred percent. And that's, that's so true. I've had people like make jokes or oh, what do you want me to get an affidavit out? I'm going to have to stop midway through so that I can get another sign of consent. And it's like, <laughs> you, you must be very unaware, you know, of yourself if that's the way that you think about right. it. I'm like, it's always good to check in with somebody as well and be like, is that okay? Do you like this? And it can be hot. Like it can be really sexy. It doesn't have to be right. explicitly saying, do you give me consent? It can be, does that feel okay? How's the pressure? Right. What's the timing right. like? Yeah. Like you can you can ask different things. Would, would you like to change positions? Like you could do anything right. and I think that's important. Yeah. Um, and we just need to talk about it more. You're right. It's so shrouded in shame that when you're having to go back to the beginning and like you've said, relearn these different things, if there's shame surrounding it from cultural backgrounds or a lack of education, um, Mm -hmm. or religious backgrounds, you know, a lot of people I've spoken to have a lot of trauma from very religious backgrounds. So it is something that is very difficult to explore. So if you don't have a partner or a friend or a family member that you feel safe talking to, then I really encourage you to just go and seek 
information from a professional. Go give it a goog. See if you can find even an online sex therapist or sexologist or pelvic physiotherapist or something that you can have a discussion with safely. And even online, you don't have to go in. You know, the the beauty of what COVID has facilitated is that you can also maybe be one step even further removed and not even be in the same room. Right. To have a very uncomfortable conversation for you personally, maybe, but knowing that the person that you're going to engage with is a professional in this and will, they don't find it awkward at all. The same thing as a doctor who does the pap smear kind of thing. They've done it a million times. So they're not ever right. going to remember the fact that you were there. They don't care. Right. But right. it is important for you. So just remember that these are professionals that are completely trained in talking about these different things and talking specifically with people who aren't comfortable talking about it. So I just think that's something that we need to talk about more that, you know, just because you've had a horrible experience or or a few horrible experiences doesn't mean that that's your lot in life and that you can, Mm -hmm. I guess, navigate things in different ways that could be very supportive and that there are people out there who are trained in this, even like yourself as a doula, having somebody there to support you, knowing, you know what, this is going to be a really difficult process for me. I'm going to invest in a doula for the entire period of my uh, pre-pregnancy and post-pregnancy and putting that in place for yourself for support. benefits. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. And I can definitely um, share with you some of the sex therapists and sexologists that helped me. Um, and they're really big on social media too. So I can share with you so you can put it in the show notes, um, for folks. But I think exactly what Maddie's saying is that you don't have to, you know, be in person with them. If if you don't want to have that, um, you know, it could bring up feelings of feeling embarrassed or ashamed. Um, you can be virtual. And that's honestly what I did. I was virtual. I had never met these people in my life. And I was like, you know what? They're probably not going to respond. They have like 20,000 followers. And I sent a DM to one of them. Her name is Anne. Um, and she's an Asian woman who specializes in trauma um, responses and, and sex. And so I you know, kind of just explained my situation in brief. Um, and she's like just sent me this like long list of books to read sent a voice no it was just so empowering and then I started like connecting with other people that she connected me to with and so I think those it's just so important um I I really love this conversation like I'm 100% dedicated to this work and I'm continuing to do research on this and finding this connection between the mental health and the sexual health and the reproductive health. Those are things that are impacting me personally every single day. And so I feel like I've, I've tackled the mental health um, component of it. Uh, It's, you know, touch and go, but that sexual health is, I mean, again, I'm in a relationship right now and, and there's still things that come up where I don't know, I, I might be embarrassed or I might like I have a perfectionism issue too. So that's a problem as well for myself. So I want to make sure that, you know, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything the right way. Um, but in reality, like there's no right way, especially when it comes to sex. And I think everyone who is looking to re-explore, um, really take the time to explore. Like it's truly a, like, I'm going to sound like a fairy tale, but it can be a magical experience even after you've had a traumatic experience. And 
it can be something that's meaningful. And even if it's self-pleasure with yourself or self-pleasure or pleasure with someone else, it can be an experience for you that could be an awakening experience. And um, another thing that I learned through this um, is your chakras. And so I don't know if anyone is like connected to their energy of their body, but if you are, that's definitely something to tap into because my chakras were super imbalanced after my assault and going to this relationship. And I, I just had so many blockages and it, I took like a lot of days just to meditate and really reflect. And that helps me to be a bit more open to trying new things. Um, and that developed over time, but I just, I, my hope is that someone who experienced this negative traumatic experience can come out of it in a way where they don't feel like their body is owned by someone else or their body has been taken hostage by someone else. And I, I hope that someone who has experienced situations like I have, or like Maddie has, or like other people have, that you can come and walk out of this and have your body be yours again. And I think for me, the way I felt like my body was mine again was by having that sexual liberation and feeling free in my sex life. And I think that was probably the hardest thing to overcome. And again, I, I overcame my traumatic experience with my soul, but those like nagging family members that like, I kind of heard in my head, like the aunts that would like look at me or like my cousins, if our skirt was too short. Right. And so I cleared away all of those like images and that's when I felt most liberated. And now I just feel so supported and loved by my partner and I feel so respected. And so I think once you get to that point, it's like a real breathtaking moment because you've made so much progress in your healing journey. And in so many ways that, you know, not just the physical and sexual part of it, but you've overcome so much mentally. And so I just hope that you also get to experience that because that liberation, that sexual liberation is like no other. And I encourage folks to really tap into it, especially if you grew up in a space where sex was shamed and it was not something you can talk about um, because that's, that was for me, it was like the most eye-opening thing. Um, And I'm grateful for those people who connected me with, uh, you know, different sexologists and therapists who really just, open my mind to different ways that I can not only please myself, but that other people could please me too. Yeah. hundred percent. I love it so much. Thank you for coming on and chatting um, all things, sex, pleasure, reproductive health, trauma recovery, everything. Um, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, um, maybe to seek your doula services, maybe to uh, read about Tay Talks and the and what you what you do and your, your podcast. Where can they reach you? Absolutely. So my website is called justtaytalks.com. and then my Instagram is at Tay Talks. Those are like the best ways to reach me. If you want to book doula services, it's right on my website. Super easy to navigate. Um, and if you want to connect um, on Tay Talks, and then my podcast is also linked um, to those platforms as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It's been so lovely chatting and I can't wait to have you on again because these conversations are amazing. Um, I love you. Thank you so much for having me, Maddie. Love (laughs) you too. Love you dearly. Um, Thanks, Tay. And uh, thank you for listening to Reclaim Me.
Thank you for listening to this episode. If you do need help or support, please reach out to those crisis services or suggested resources in the show notes for this episode. Have a look after yourself and make sure that you're doing and taking the time that you need to process the information or to process anything that may have come up that was triggering for you. Lastly, I do have one ask. Can you please take the time to rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any platform that you listen to Reclaim Me on? This helps tremendously with me reaching additional people and making sure that we get the word out there that there is no shame or stigma that should be associated with being a victim of these crimes. If you could also share this podcast with somebody you may know, as you may not be a survivor yourself, but you sure as hell know one. Thank you again. Bye. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.